From the Gettysburg and 91.1 WCBT Gettysburg, I'm Ben Ponce, and this is On Target. I'm Mary Frazier. Today on On Target, we'll discuss the college's new plan to hire armed external security contractors and share highlights from yesterday's faculty meeting. Then we'll sit down with Assistant Professor of Music and new Director of Orchestral Activities, Cesar Lael. Stay with All right, let's get into the news. First of all, welcome. Uh, Mary is our new co-host for the semester. You may remember Gary, uh, who is abroad right now in Bath, England. Okay, well, there you go. Bath, England, studying something to do with theater, I'm sure, you know, one of those very <laughs> employable degrees. I'll say that while she's not here to, you know, defend herself. So in any case, welcome, Mary. Thank you. It's great to be here. I can tell. Okay. <laughs> so why don't we dive right into the news. Uh, yesterday, the uh, we're recording this on Friday, August the 30th. Uh, and so yesterday, on Thursday, the Gettysburgian uh, published uh, an article uh, announcing that the college, uh, which had initially released plans last spring to arm DPS officers, Department of Public Safety officers, during certain uh, situations such as, um, you know, one that they have continually cited as a Klan rally in Gettysburg that could possibly spill over onto campus. Another would be large open-air uh, campus events such as convocation or commencement. The initial plan was to have armed DPS officers at such events as well as to have armed uh, or to have guns in a locked safe over at DPS that could be accessed in the event of an active shooter situation or something like that. Since March, when the college announced that uh, they would be punting that decision to the new president, Bob Uliano, they've come up with a new plan. And the new plan is arguably as controversial. Uh, it involves the hiring potentially of external security contractors, so in the past, the college has used G-Force Investigations, which is a local uh, small business, I guess you could say, that does some security work. They provide uh, the school resource officers in Adams County uh, public schools. Um, in the past, the college has used them largely for security at fraternity parties and the like. Um, but now they will be potentially using G-Force as an armed, uh, armed guards, essentially. Um, and of course, the first priority or the first goal of the college would be to have local law enforcement present, but uh, there are some concerns that that will not always be possible. And so instead of having the backup plan be armed DPS officers, it will now be these armed external security uh, contractors. And the other point worth noting is that while initially uh, this plan had called for DPS being able to access guns in the event of an armed shooter situation. That's really not part of the new plan. So, um, you know, Gene Ramsey, uh, Julie Ramsey said directly, we don't have a plan for that. Uh, I mean, beyond calling the police. Uh, but she did concede that, that, you know, having guns at DPS's headquarters you know, locked away would make it rather difficult to access in the event of such a situation anyway, you know, even if a shooter were right in front of DPS, by the time someone had gone in, unlocked the guns, come out and responded, you know, that would probably take at least a minute or two. And, and as these uh, mass shootings tend to tend to 
end rather quickly with high body counts, it's not necessarily clear that that would have been helpful anyway. So with all of that, there's a, a nice, real happy lead story for you, Mary. Thoughts? I just don't know what the difference is going to be with the G-Force, because the whole point of arming DPS, like you said, was to make it quicker, more accessible. Um, Lafferty's original worry was that Gettysburg police don't respond quick enough, so I just don't understand why this G-Force would respond quicker than the regular borough police would. Well, and so it's worth noting that G-Force is not, they're not relying on G-Force for this armed shooter situation. They're only relying on them potentially for these planned events, you know, be they graduation or whatever else. Uh, convocation, I guess, would be one. I suppose the new president's uh, inauguration coming up in September. There's a good shot there will be some armed security there, I would imagine. But, you know, in terms of your your point, it's, it, there was a concern that Bill Lafferty, who's the, the director of DPS, had raised last spring, which was that Gettysburg Borough Police has had some staffing struggles. They did finally hire a permanent chief, and, and Lafferty seems to have confidence in the new chief. Um and, and that there are better law enforcement partnerships today than there were six months ago. But I think certainly a fair point that, uh, you know, it, it's they've they've addressed two of the three. Julie Ramsey framed there being two, three possible scenarios in which they'd want armed people. One is the active shooter situation. The second is a planned event off campus that they're afraid could spill onto campus, and the ra- and the example they keep using is a Klan rally. And then the third would be these large events at which there are just a lot of people and, you know, things could go wrong. I suppose the Robert Spencer saga. Were you here for the Robert Spencer saga, or was that before your time? That was, I believe, a year before me. Uh, those were the... I would say those were the days, not really. That was a bizarre situation. But in any case, there was a situation a couple of years ago where Robert Spencer, who is a a right-wing Islamophobe, I suppose might be a charitable description of his activities, came to speak. Uh, there were all kinds of threats from local chapters of, of Antifa and other groups to make Gettysburg Berkeley referring to setting Gettysburg College on fire like protesters had set uh, Berkeley on fire after the whole Milo Yiannopoulos debacle. And so the college was, I suppose, understandably concerned about that prospect, and uh, they did end up having the event. It was in a closed venue. There were state police out the wazoo. It was a, it was one, one heck of an event. That's absurd. It was indeed absurd. <laughs> But anyway, that sparked the whole freedom of expression conversation that happened, I guess, your first year. Uh, And then I guess that has also been in the back of the minds of the colleges there considering this scenario. I do wonder how students are going to respond to, you know, the concern about having armed DPS officers. One concern was that it would change the relationship, you know, where currently DPS tries to be very approachable and whatever else. And I don't know what your thoughts are, the extent to which they exceed or succeed rather in that endeavor. But there was a concern that giving even them potentially in some limited instances, having access to guns would change the nature of that relationship. I definitely think it would change the nature of the relationship. Um, Obviously, at least most students talk to DPS officers with respect, but there's like a whole new level 
when the person you're talking to has a gun on them and could very easily shoot you. Not that DPS is going to shoot you, but um, that that's a potential there. Yeah. And I mean, again, they weren't talking about having them, you know, it's not as if every time you saw Ricky Pierce walking around campus that he'd have a gun on his on his holster. Officer Pierce, I love him. Well, that's why I figured I would go to that example. Mm. Uh, but in any case, it, you know, it certainly could there certainly could have been times when he or or, well, I mean, any of the trained officers, there's a state law that governed what kind of training is required could have been armed, and, uh, well, no longer. So the college says this is a done deal, this is what they're doing, and uh, there's not exactly another opportunity specifically for public comment, although Gettysburg College students rarely await an invitation to comment. They tend to just start commenting, so I suppose nothing is done until it's done. All right, let's move on to yesterday, also on Thursday, the Gettysburg College faculty held its first meeting of the year. I have the distinct pleasure of going to all of those meetings. Uh, it was a... It was a largely celebratory affair. It was Bob Giuliano's first faculty meeting. Uh, he... Uh, gave some opening remarks that were largely celebratory, and then he did slip in there that the college is running out of money. Uh, not quite in those terms, but the incoming first-year class is smaller than they had hoped. And of course, you know, fundamentally in terms of dollars and cents, every student that doesn't come is $69,850 the college doesn't have. And so, you know, that adds up fairly quickly as we get rolling. So, uh, you seem like you might want to weigh in on that subject. Well, you know, for running out of money, maybe we shouldn't buy glass tents this year. That's just my personal opinion. Glass tents. Do, do elaborate for those that might not be aware. So last year, I don't even remember what we were celebrating. It was some alumni thing. But there was a major, um, really quickly constructible and then deconstructible um, see-through glass tent, I guess you can call it out on Memorial Field um, where there was a very bougie dinner and there was entertainment and then fireworks shot out of it at the end of the night. But meanwhile, I'm over here and I can't afford half my te textbooks. So the uh, the tent to which you're referring uh, was used for the culminating event of the college's big fundraising campaign. Uh, they did end up raising something like $161 million as part of that campaign. Uh, and then they did promptly blow, I don't know exactly how much, they wouldn't tell me exactly how much, on this tent for a, a celebratory dinner. Uh, exactly. If they're not going to tell you, it's obviously an obscene amount. That's uh, probably true. Although someone did tell me that they had a separate donor who wrote a check to underwrite the celebratory event so that that didn't cut into the campaign. That said, the college plans that for every... Let me get this right. For every, I believe they, they spend 33% approximately of what they raise on raising the money. So if you know they raise $100, they spend $33 to raise $100. We interviewed last fall Bob Callan, who was the head of development, who was the head of develop, the head of development at the time of uh, the event. And that's what he said. So you know, I guess that means to raise $161 million, we spent $50 million. I, I don't quite understand if that's an apples-to-apples -apples comparison there. Uh, 
But in any case, uh, yeah, you're you're indeed correct that the college does have some interesting spending priorities. Bob Uliano said that every department on campus has been instructed to, uh, you know, look to spend its resources intelligently. I believe intelligently was the adverb he, he ascribed to it. He also, uh, you know, mentioned that the incoming class is... He alluded, and I assume this is what he meant, and I've heard this from other sources, so I'll assume this is what he meant, that the class has other, quote, financial characteristics, unquote, that could pose some challenges to the college. That seems to imply that the discount rate, which is the percentage um, that the college actually gets from tuition once you subtract out the financial aid it awards, Mm -hmm. is higher this year than they had planned which means that the college will be getting less money in actual tuition receipts than planned. Um, so all of this is to say that financial, uh, you know, the college is, never ceases to be out of money. Uh, you know, they've been out of money since 1832. Okay, uh, the other big news from the faculty meeting was that Dr. Scott Hancock, the chair of the history department, Associate Professor of History and of Africana Studies, was awarded the Gettysburg College Distinguished Teaching Award, which is given annually to a member of the faculty. It's considered the highest honor that the faculty bestows on a colleague. Uh, It's typically awarded at commencement. This past year during commencement, uh, Professor Hancock was away, and so they honored him yesterday uh, at at the faculty meeting. Um, it was a, 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 there was a large and extended standing ovation given to him uh, in, in his honor, and then the provost proceeded to read a rather lengthy citation for the award uh, that quoted several former students, including uh, Jerome Clark, who graduated a few years ago and is now in a PhD program, as far as I understand, uh, as well as Jennifer Bloomquist, who, who is the associate provost, was the Uh, first African-American to become a full professor at Gettysburg College and has been a longtime friend of Scott Hancock. And so in any case, I don't know, you you said you've never had a history major. I am a history major. I've never had him, but I've had a few interactions with him. He seems very distinguished. Well, indeed. I did have him the spring of my first year for uh, African-American history. Great class, great professor, and I think a well-deserved award has been the the consensus all the way around. So congratulations to him. Also, uh, two other awards, well, one other award that had two recipients was announced yesterday. The Luther and Bernice Thompson Teaching Award is given to a newly tenured faculty member. Well, actually, not quite. A faculty member who just had a tenure review who uh, displays the most distinguished teaching. And for the first time in at least two decades, it seems, they gave it to two people, one of whom got tenure and the other of whom did not get tenure, uh, which is a little, little, little interesting, a little awkward, perhaps you might say. It was that the, is a yikes. Yeah, Henning Varaga from the German department, who did get tenure, uh, was one winner. And then the other winner uh, is Tim Lin, from the Department of Economics, who was recently denied tenure. Uh, Of course, tenure has three components. All promotion processes of the college evaluate research, uh, evaluate teaching, and evaluate service, service to the college for the most part, as as evidenced by advising student uh, groups or uh, service on faculty committees. I guess service to their respective disciplines can count as well. 
And by all accounts, uh, Tim Lin had some, you know, solid service. He, he was on the student life committee for a number of years. And clearly he had some distinguished teaching. Um, <laughs> I, I guess that kind of leaves research uh, as an area. I, I've read his CV. It indicates that he has published within the last year, although the economics department, I suppose, is one of the more uh, research-focused departments on campus, perhaps, at least in the social sciences, although not as research-productive, uh, perhaps, as the Department of Psychology, where everyone seems to be churning out papers like gangbusters. <laughs> but in any case, uh, Tim Lin receives this award. We'll be leaving at the end of the year, though, because he did not get tenure. So that's a little awkward. Okay, uh, so the other the other news from yesterday's faculty meeting was a recitation of the new uh, faculty members. There are 17 new tenure track or, or visiting assistant professors, including several who were Mellon faculty fellows last year, which uh, means they had a one-year appointment. Uh, they represent some aspect of diversity that the college got a big grant to hire some faculty in, and now those one-year fellowships convert to tenure track assistant professorships. And we'll be talking to one new tenure-track assistant professor, Cesar Leal, in just a moment. Uh, other than that, the faculty ended its meeting and proceeded to the president's house for a nice little glitzy reception in the backyard. I'm told that in past years, under the Riggs presidency, the open bar went until people left. Uh, but oh, at oh. some point yesterday, uh, the open bar ceased to be open, and uh, the event ended. Uh, apparently in the past there had been less of a formal ending. Yesterday there was a bit of a formal ending, but apparently a, a good time was still had by all, I suppose. I, you know, was not there, but the faculty and staff and ad uh, other administrators are always invited the first week of classes to head to the, uh, the president's house. So that happened. Other than that, any other news going on? I guess yesterday was the activities fair. Yes, yesterday was activities fair. They were bumping. There was a lot of different tables. Um, there was free ice cream. I'm, free ice cream is always a plus. Yeah, definitely a plus. And they had non-chocolate options, which made me happy. Um, well, that's right. You're a chocolate terrorist. I think that's a really <laughs> strong word to use just because I don't like chocolate, but okay. Um, that's what we do on Odd Target. Use excessively strong words to describe everyday situations. Ah, uh, I understand. So... Um, but definitely a lot of bright young faces who want to join lots of clubs. So it was kind of nice to see that fresh college hasn't killed me yet vibe going on at the activities fair yesterday. Has, has college killed you? Ooh, I don't know. Last semester was I was it, we were close. Well, you survived methods. I did barely, but I did. Well, there you go. All right, that's going to wrap up our news segment. We'll be right back with the bullet report, of which there may not be one because most sports haven't started yet, and then our interview with Cesar Leal.
and we are pleased to be joined today by the brand new director of the orchestra program and assistant professor of music over in the Sunderman Conservatory at Gettysburg, Dr. Cesar Leal. Dr. Leal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben, for having me. This is uh, a treat to be, to be invited uh, to talk to you about the orchestra. So why don't we start here? You came to Gettysburg just a few weeks ago, I suppose, to start this appointment. What was your earliest kind of memory of making music? Oh, my goodness. Um, it, that, that's a difficult question because my life has been around music uh, since a very early age. Uh, some of my memories actually don't come from personal recollection, but from photos I have. Mm -hmm. um, playing the recorder when I was four or giving small recitals of three note pieces when I was like two or something. Mm -hmm. And then around my family, there was also always the motivation of not making music um, as a performance oriented uh, activity, but as a means to connect with one another. So music, let's say, has been around my DNA for mm -hmm. since since I can think about. And you grew up in, uh, mm -hmm. you grew up in Colombia. Yes, I am originally from Bogota. Colombia. So mm. talk about kind of how that has shaped your musical career. Well, um, it, when I was growing up, my family, uh, we all would gather together, of course, big family, um, all in the same city. It's a very centralized country. So a lot of the big things happened in Bogota, where I had uh, the opportunity to grow up. Uh, it's, an, it's a, you know, seven to 10 million people city. So we're talking about big, big city. And my family would, would, would get together every Sunday. Uh, and I'm talking about every Sunday at my grandma's house and make music together. And of course, the uh, love for these kinds of meetings and the relationship with music, which was also a very... Uh, let's say loving one, um, translated into the desire of, of going a little bit further in my technical proficiency. So one scale next <laughs> led to the next, and then thesis, and then repertoire, and then the conservatory, and then the university, and then, you know, it all went from, from there. And what instruments did you, you know, play growing up, and, and ultimately did you decide to pursue more professionally? <laughs> yeah, let's say I have two identities. One is uh, I play some instruments by ear. So I actually didn't, le didn't uh, learn how to read music until I was 16 or 17 years old. So that was wow. fairly late in the, in the business. But I could definitely pick up a, a tune with just one or two hearings. That's why I did piano and that's how I learned you know, string instruments, looking at the shapes of the hands in my father's uh, guitar. And then I knew what chord it was and how it sounded, but I had no idea about the structure. And um, after that, I started uh, my undergrad as a saxophone player, and I graduated as a as a BA, I guess, with an emphasis in performance. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, all those piano skills and the saxophone skills and some string techniques led to my familiarity with mm -hmm. some of the orchestral instruments. Mm -hmm. um, so, what made you decide to pursue teaching at Gettysburg College? You had been at Swanee for several years on a tenure track, but you decided to head north. Yes. Um, well, I was uh, living in the south in a very uh, recognized liberal arts school in, in many ways very similar to uh, Gettysburg, you know, honor code and, and liberal arts education for the most part. But there were some uh, tensions as a gay man uh, to live 
in the South and we were, my husband and I were not very, uh, we didn't feel welcome in culturally in many, in many of the spaces. Um, my husband used to say that he doesn't feel threatened, but he doesn't feel free. And that's a very powerful statement. So, um, and of course I was <clears throat> in this uh, tenure track position and after a couple of considerations, we saw the ad for the position in Gettysburg. So it seemed like a perfect fit because I, as you probably know, besides conducting, I'm a musicologist. That's what my actual PhD is about, music history, music in context. So it seemed like an uh, institution of this prestige and this, uh, with a conservatory within the liberal arts school seemed like the perfect fit. So we decided to apply to a very selective position and, and things panned out. It was a one-year process. Mm -hmm. And when I received the invitation, there was not much to think about, you know? Mm. We, we love it. Mm -hmm. And so full disclosure, you talked about teaching in musicology and, <clears throat> and when you did a teaching demonstration last spring, I was in the classroom. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, and in that lecture, uh, you, you were presenting on the opera Carmen exactly. and it was unlike any other opera lecture I think anyone in the room had experienced, which was, you know, it, you, were the, you were the talk of the conservatory for a day or two after that. Oh, my goodness. In good, <laughs> in good ways. Uh, but I, I was just kind of wondering in broad terms if you could talk about kind of how you approach presenting music from eras that none of us were alive in to, to students. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, it is also the same way I see music history. Uh, there's a, a kind of a trend going uh, on right now, which is what we call the new musicology, which with which I subscribed 100%, which is not only to inform um, historical accounts and what happened around pieces and composers and construct, a, let's say, a linear um, historical narrative. I am more interested in what story, uh, history and music history can say about how times were happening and how some of those things seem, tend to be circular. How can we understand our present by literally seeing our past? And this is what, what operas are very, very useful for because they were one of the most faithful reflections of the culture of the time. So if you get a glimpse of what under, lays underneath the musical symbols, which is the notation and the characters and their personalities, in this case, Carmen, you actually can see not only what was happening, but how people was thinking. And in that way, you can actually uh, establish patterns of behavior in cultures and also um, re the recurrence of such, such patterns. And in a way, it works like a window into your own present. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I am a, a, an advocate for, for, for that kind of approach to music history. It's also, it's also entertaining and fascinating. It's like playing CSI. In, Right. Well, right. And your lecture, you know, that lecture touched on all kinds of themes. Um, you know, there were themes of gender and, and sexuality that you had tied in, of kind of political conflict and, and colonialism. And I guess all of that seems to naturally fit into teaching music in a liberal arts environment. Is that something you're eager to embrace, I, I imagine? Absolutely. I mean, coming back to Carmen, for those of you who, who know the famous Habanera, uh, there's way more than that. The, the, that the depiction of the woman uh, as a sexual object in that opera. So we can learn that that can be a reflection of the colonial mindset of the French, France of the time, which at that point were appropriating a great part of Africa. And this is how you can learn from an opera. Uh, you, you can get a window into a lot of disciplines.
And I think this is why areas like musicology or music history are perfect for liberal art education because you borrow from so many disciplines used to build knowledge and it's there's literally space for any area to to participate in in the construction of of musical meaning in the interpretation of musical meaning mm -hmm. i'm not a mu music major or minor but i want to take one of these classes now <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so far, you're teaching world music this fall. What else do you see yourself teaching in the future in the classroom music setting? Oh, my goodness. Um, whatever they let me. I, I, have, <laughs> I have a list of, of, of classes. I have designed a class that I am thinking about proposing, which is women in Mozart. Mozart. So taking all the female characters in Mozart, in which you can see a lot of the uh, representations about class and and, and, uh, and other issues. Uh, you can discuss things like sexual assault, which are very timely concerns um, right now, I guess. You can talk about uh, petrarchy. You can talk about uh, women and sexualized objects. You can talk about empowerment of women based on social uh, positions and things like that. So there's a lot of things to learn based on the way Mozart characters, female characters, appear depicted in, in his operas. It's quite a, uh, a gender uh, ABC, I guess. You could, you could interpret a lot of, a lot of uh, interesting uh, pieces of information. Right now, this, this world music class is based on music from Latin America, which is also one of the topics I've been uh, working on. So we talked about how movement and social dialogue occur. And uh, also what the impact of cultural migration in countries like the United States, with as a touchy subject, I would say a sensitive one definitely, has contributed to build the identity of this country, especially in the Latino community. So we talked about all of those things, again, not just about the music, but what can we learn about ourselves through the study of those musical phenomenon. I just feel like I should note that when you said uh, women in Mozart, Mary's jaw dropped about, you know, uh, you know, Mary, you're a Wiggs. I am a Wiggs minor, so if you can cross-list that class, I will be in it next year. Oh, my. <laughs> look, look at the recruiting happening right here. <laughs> so maybe to turn for turn to your role, your kind of, I don't want to say your other role, because I think they're all connected, but your role conducting the orchestra. Uh, talk about kind of, I guess, philosophically or more broadly, your approach to conducting an orchestra, particularly one in an environment like this that blends conservatory and liberal arts? It is fascinating uh, because the kind of musicians we have are very unique. And uh, I apologize for the, for the, for the double, <laughs> <laughs> the very unique, because um, it is really remarkable what, this, what these students can do, not only from the performance standpoint, but from their ability to understand the musical uh, concept, the idea behind the performance right away. And that informs, again, as a musicologist, I can say that understanding the music really, really influenced the way you played. Um, there's no way just to read the notes without understanding the context. I mean, there is a way to do that, but uh, definitely understanding brings a more human uh, approach to the sound. And that's definitely what I heard yesterday in my first rehearsal with the strings. Yeah, how did that go? <laughs> Wonderful. I, 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 I just had a blast. It, it was fantastic. They were prepared. They were eager. They were happy to be there. And that's not always the case with, uh, with musicians who have uh, 
a very long day and, and they have to come at 7.30 to sit and play for two hours. <laughs> and, and it's a very uh, tiring exercise because you're always concentrating and focused and mm -hmm. make sure you play with others. But um, I think it's going to be a, a great, great opportunity for all of us to grow as an ensemble. Um, and the fact that we have all these different backgrounds makes just more more fun experience mm -hmm. you know they all we kind of have so many different conversations during break mm -hmm. you hear different languages you hear a variety of interests you hear about parties you hear about so it, it is quite interesting mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. <laughs> what are some of the pieces if you're willing to share that you I mean I guess some are already out there that you have on the program for the very first concert which I suppose is in uh, something like 21 days or three weeks. I know. We don't have time to... <laughs> Ooh, it's so, crunch time. <laughs> exactly. No pressure, huh? Um, well, this first concert is quite quite a, uh, an interesting one because we are sharing the stage with the Wind Symphony. It's mm -hmm. the first concert of the year. And so half of the concert is going to be performed by the Wind Symphony conducted by Professor McCutcheon um, in the music uh, department the music conservatory and the rest is going to be performed by the strings orchestra only strings this time and we're going to perform um a very recognizable work by a uh, greek called the holbrook suite which is a, con a uh, compendium of dances which is basically what a suite means and we're going to perform four of those suites of those dances and then we're going to have performed two tangos by piazzola uh, the very famous Argentinian composer. So one of the things that I meet very interesting is how to bring diversity to the to the programming. Mm -hmm. You know, Latin American composers, from female composers, explore of kinds of of, of uh, the voices of minorities, which is something I'm very uh, passionate about. And we're going to do that for the first concert. Now for the second concert, we have <laughs> a completely different program because we have the entire orchestra. And we're going to do... Uh, the overture of a very famous opera called Nabucco, which is basically fireworks uh, mm -hmm. on, on, on stage. It's just so wonderful. The brass just play at the top of the lungs, and there's something, if there's something that, that brass players love, is to be able to play loud. Yeah, that would be guilty as charged. Exactly. <laughs> but also we're going to have a very wonderful piece by uh, Marquez called Danson Number no. 2. And the last time I performed this piece in Tennessee, people were dancing on the aisles of the yes of the <laughs> of so the auditorium. Cool. So it has congas and it has it's also a dance and it has uh, you know all the Latino uh, in this case Cuba Mexico Cuban let's say influence of this very characteristic dance called danzón mm -hmm. and translated of course to a symphonic language. So it's going to have also. Um, those kind of balance. But at the same time, we're going to perform with the winner of the concerto competition last semester before my arrival. Mm -hmm. And he won, he won with the Greek piano concerto. So we're going to be accompanying mm -hmm. one of our students. Gyasu. Uh, exactly. Yes. Exactly. He's going to, uh, he's wonderful. Uh, really, really <laughs> remarkable pianist. Uh, I can't wait, wait to, to work with him. And of course, we are all looking forward to to put that program together and there's still one surprise piece that i'm not allowed to to reveal right now <laughs> people have to stay tuned to, you, you mentioned this a second ago one um i don't want to say it's a criticism i've heard of the conservatory but one concern that i know some conservatory students have raised over the years is about 
the diversity or lack thereof of composers of music that is performed. And it sounds like that's an issue that you care about uh, improving. Yes, it's a reality. I mean, let's face it, we are a Eurocentric musical tradition, and this is what a conservatory means. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of a liberal arts, which I think is pioneering in a way, the way we think about music education, is how we can open that tradition, that very closed, selective, self-centered tradition on, on European composers to the talent of other, or you know, the voices of other composers that are not perhaps uh, originated from that tradition. And I think that's a very valid concern and something that we are in a position, luckily, to address mm -hmm. without suffering the consequences of, of you know, social punishment or cultural punishment because it happens it happens orchestras that sometimes they're to play female composers or composers from minorities or just at least leaving the canon leaving beethoven mozart get get punished um, by their audiences mm -hmm. so i think we're in a unique position to explore that balance that that is not very common mm -hmm. in orchestras these days if we were to look back next August, what would you say might be the measures of success for your first year at Gettysburg? Oh my goodness, this is a very loaded question because... <laughs> because well, that's, I, that's what we aim for, the loaded questions here. This is... Um, <laughs> I have so many plans and so many ideas, and those change as I get to know um, the students and my colleagues. And they have changing very fast at a very positive way because the support I got from my colleagues, the investment my colleagues have is really remarkable. I mean, I've been here for a week and I've learned so much from them. Uh, it's very inspiring. And um, I do think that, I wouldn't say I wanna talk about next August, but I wanna talk about the next five or six years. This is why I would like, I would like an orchestra that can travel around the world, I can uh, imagine an orchestra that uh, can play anything. Uh, I can imagine an orchestra that represents the idea of, of um, Gettysburg, not, not just locally, you know, the conservatory of the small liberal arts school that, mm -hmm. that has all these wonderful kids, but that can also legitimize the idea of the liberal arts school uh, and almost professional music making because as you know there is a uh, the liberal arts model is under attack <laughs> very very has been for a while so in a way this is the proof that those attacks are not um, you know funded in a very accurate reality if, if, if you mm -hmm. if you will um, and legitimizing that proving that or reflecting what we can do within disciplines uh, might offer the pragmatic evidence of which we are accused enough not having mm -hmm. as a liberal arts institution. I mean, in general. Right. So, you know, you, you just mentioned this kind of grand idea of, of conservatory liberal arts and, and, and an orchestra that can, you know, play anything was what you said. What kind of, as you approach all of these, and, and some would argue potentially that those are competing, not competing, but, you know, not all one and the same idea, how do you kind of, A, go about uniting those ideas, and B, what's kind of your North Star with respect to how you approach the next five or six years, as you said? 
Okay, there's a there's a learning curve with this, um, and that's based on repertoire. Repertoire has two, in my in my opinion, has two many different two two different approaches. One is it is like a like a like a meal. So you have your uh, protein, you have your vegetables that some people might find challenging to to digest, I guess, or to eat. <laughs> but you also you have your dessert. So that it, that balance. At, not only uh, enhances the the audience, which right now needs to be enticed uh, not just by the aesthetic value, but also the entertainment that an orchestra or a, or a concert can provide. Um, but at the same time, it's a pedagogical experience. So picking the pieces, choosing the repertoire by the challenges they offer uh, within their ability of the students to be successful at playing them is key aspect. We don't want students to feel like we're just programming things that they can play. You know, we want them to feel that they actually got this. And of course, once we start playing those pieces, the, we, we can easily raise the bar because those pieces teach specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why some repertoire is only performed by big orchestras and some other repertoire is more suitable for what we do. So my approach with, with not just with diversity, but which technical and pedagogical development is oriented to what, what uh, repertoire fits our needs and our possibilities mm-hmm. and challenges what we can do. And then maybe two kind of related final questions. The first one uh, is that, as we mentioned earlier, the first concert of the uh, symphony orchestra's season, I believe is September the 20th. Yes. Uh, so that would be uh, about 21 days away. 20... Thank you for reminding me that. My, a... my pleasure. That's just mean, Ben. Don't do that. <laughs> well, where I was going with this was this program, in addition to being a podcast that is released on the Gettysburg College campus, uh, airs on the college radio station and, and, and members of the greater Gettysburg community listen. So what would be your pitch to someone to come out and hear the, the orchestra in concert, not just on September the 20th, but yeah. beyond? I think that the involvement of orchestra uh, has to be beyond coming and listening. So if you're listening to this, just, yeah, listening, coming to our concerts is a, is a small part of supporting us. But involving the orchestra in what you do and vice versa is what we want. Um, we want to pair with local organizations to see what can happen. We want to help uh, student organizations to come and, and, and reach our audience, like sponsor our concerts and tell the guests, which you will have 500, hopefully, of them <laughs> at the same time telling what you're doing. You know, if you're from a fraternity and you have a project, just reach out to us to see how we can help your uh, organization and, and vice versa grow and be part of the same community. Uh, this cannot be a one-way relationship. I think orchestras, in order, especially in order to survive these days, we see what's happening in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The orchestras need to be involved in the life of the city, in the life of the community, and that's how they thrive, and that's how they su- su- uh, they have success. And then the second question is: as a as a classroom teacher, as a musicologist. What would be kind of your pitch to someone who, you know, maybe would be interested in one of these classes that you're developing in the future about, uh, you know, Mary's raising her hand, uh, you know, to someone who hasn't studied musicology, but you talked about all of the potential liberal arts tie-ins. What, what might be the pitch there? That there's way too many interesting things uh, to learn that anybody could bring to the table. And you do not need to be a musician, a trained musician, but a curious one. To, to get the most out of this, uh, out of this idea of, of music history. And this is what 
I would like to see uh, diversity. You know, these this courses, these hundred level courses that I teach attract for the most part non-musicians, but students that have been connected to music in one another way. Some of them love dancing, some of them love parties, and and there is a space for, for, for each one of them to explore what what does that mean in the larger context. You know, for instance, we, we were having a wonderful discussion yesterday about what it means to be a musician, and one of the readings we have in the book said that in some cultural traditions, you do not need to be a performer, but also an audience member to be considered a musician. So we were thinking about, well, if you're in a concert and you are jumping or dancing with another 4,000 people or 5,000 people choreographed dancing with the beat, that makes you a participant observer or really makes you a part of the performance. And of course, these are the, the kind of, of discussion that spark the discussion in class, which is basically how I orient my courses, as you probably saw in the, in the Carmen um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, class that, that I taught uh, last spring. So those are the kinds of discussions for which you do not need to be a musician, but be connected and engage with the, the philosophy and the idea behind the musical phenomenon. All right. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Cesar Leal, thanks so much for joining it us. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, you guys, for having me. And uh, if you're listening, I hope we get the chance to um, have coffee and have sparking conversations. And I'm in office 300B of, <laughs> <laughs> of the conservatory building. All right. Thanks. Thank you. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Cesar Leal for being our featured guest today. We'd also like to thank the staff of the Gettysburgian and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support of this project. Be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of the Gettysburgian and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a recent graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory of Music, now pursuing a master's in music composition. Join us next week. I'm not sure who our featured guest will be, but I'm sure it'll be great. Until then, have a great week.